0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Please take your Bibles if you have them and open to Matthew chapter 7. As we continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to a narrow gate, a narrow gate which Jesus sets before us. Seven centuries before Jesus ascended the mount on which he preached the Sermon on the Mount, the prophet Joel described a valley which he called the Valley of Decision, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. Now, every one of you makes decisions every day. For example, you decided to get up today. Was that a good decision? I guess time will tell. But uh, every day you decide to get up and you make small decisions and great decisions. What you're going to put on, what road you'll take to get to work, uh, what you're going to do first once you get there. Small decisions and great decisions. Some of the decisions are significant. How, how you're going to treat your spouse, how you're going to raise your kids. But of all the decisions, That God puts before you, there is none more significant, none more important than what you do with the text we're looking at today. What did you do at the narrow gate? Did you enter it or did you stay outside? That's the most vital decision you can ever make in your life, for this impacts your eternal destiny. What did you do at the narrow gate? The Sermon on the Mount is a masterpiece of preaching. No preacher could ever ascend to Jesus' level of preaching. It really is a marvel. And any sermon must be applied. And Jesus now, in this seventh chapter, the rest of the seventh chapter, is taking his teaching and applying it directly to our hearts. And he begins by an appeal, I would say even a command, that we should enter the narrow gate. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, however beautiful, however majestic, is not meant to be marveled at. It is meant to be obeyed. We're going to see that more and more over the next few weeks. We can marvel at it, and we should. When Jesus finished this teaching... The people who heard him were amazed, and it's good to be amazed. But we need to go past amazement. We need to go into obedience. And this is the first opportunity that Jesus gives us to directly respond to his commands. Jesus is getting his hearers ready for Judgment Day. And so he sets before them here two gates and two roads. Next week, we're going to get to know two trees, one a good tree and one a bad tree. Also, two claims, someone who says, Lord, Lord, and it's true, and someone who says, Lord, Lord, and it isn't true. And then at the end, we're going to see two houses. One of them stands and the other falls. Jesus is teaching again and again the same lesson that we need to be ready for Judgment Day. And here He's beginning to get us ready by commanding us to enter the narrow gate. Now, throughout the Scripture, God is constantly taking His people to a point of decision, to a point in which they need to make a commitment one way or the other, a point in which they need to decide to choose life or death. It's been that way from the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, God set a tree... The tree of the knowledge of the good good and evil and said, you shall not eat from that tree. For the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so he set before Adam and Eve a choice. In the Arabah, that's the desert across from the Jordan River, right before the people of God entered the promised land, Moses set before them the whole law for a second time. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. is the second giving of the law. And at that moment, Moses laid before them in Deuteronomy 30. He said, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And this day I call heaven and earth against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. And so that's the choice he sets before them at the Arabah. After the land was conquested, after Joshua had led the tribes through all their conquests one after another, he called everyone together at Shechem. And he said this, he said, If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you see it's the same choice? He set before them the choice whether they would obey and follow God or whether they would disobey. And then on in Israel's history, after a long pattern of rejection, a long pattern of disobedience, Uh, Elijah gathered them together again, this time at Mount Carmel, along with the prophets of Baal and the people of Israel. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver? How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. It's the same thing. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us when Jesus, the Son of God, enters the world, He will pick up this same mode of communication. He will bring the people to a point of decision. He does it time and time again. We've already seen earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus walking beside the Sea of Galilee. And he came upon two brothers, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for their fishermen. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Follow me. A word of command. And now they have a decision. Should they continue fishing or should they follow Jesus? Well, they made the decision. They followed. And Jesus went up a little further and saw James and his brother John and said the same thing. Follow me. And immediately they got up and followed him. After the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 9, Jesus is going to come across Matthew, the very one who who wrote this account for us. He was working in the tax collector's booth, and at that moment, Jesus gave him the same command follow me. And Matthew got up from his tax collecting booth and followed Jesus. He brought him to that point of decision, and Matthew obeyed and followed. This is Jesus' way. Now, Jesus does not make it easy for us, Jesus challenges us with his doctrine. In John chapter 6, Jesus wanted to weed out the true believers from the, fo- from the mere followers, from those who are just interested in seeing the miracles, or maybe getting some of that bread and fish. And so Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. Well, at that point, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus turned to his own twelve and said, you do not want to leave too, do you? He set the question before them, and Peter answered for them all except one. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus consistently bringing people to a point of decision, even to a point of challenge. And then on the Damascus Road, he did the same with Saul of Tarsus. He brought him to a point of decision. And Saul obeyed and followed. And so, for us, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. There's been so much good teaching, so much encouragement. But now it's time to decide. It's time to choose. What will we do? Will we follow or will we not? And so Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Two gates, two roads, two destinies, two groups. And we can learn lessons from each of these. Let's first learn the lessons from the two gates. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate. And broad is the road that leads to life. So there are two gates here. We have the narrow gate and we have the wide gate. But just that there is a gate teaches us something. And it it teaches us simply that there is an outside and there is an inside. A gate is something through which we travel to get from the outside to the inside or from the inside back to the outside. It's a a means of traveling. So there is an inside and there is an outside. And so Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, they were pushed outside the Garden of Eden. You remember the the terrible words, outside. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. It says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth. It's a message saying you're not welcome back in. You're on the outside now because of your sin. Pushed outside. And so it was also at the time of the flood. When God saw that the thoughts of our hearts were only evil all the time, he brought a a flood on the earth. And so it was, in Genesis 7, 23, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Only Noah was left and those with him inside the ark. Do you see outside and inside? If you're inside the ark, you're safe. If you're outside the ark, you're not. It's destruction. And so also it was in the land of Goshen, with the people of Israel. The time came for the Passover, and the Passover lamb was sacrificed, and the lamb's blood was spread on the door. But God gave them a warning. He said, Not one of you shall go out of his house until morning. Now, what is implicit in that threat? If you go outside, you'll die. You'll perish. But if you stay inside the house, the house with the bloody door, if you stay inside there, you're safe, you're secure. Outside and inside. And so this is the lesson of the gate. And how about Rahab's house? you remember Rahab, the story of Rahab the prostitute? She welcomed the two spies that came from the people of God. And she protected them, she hid them, and then when the time came she said, I know that God has given our city and the whole land into your hands. Now please swear to me and promise that you will spare me and my family. And they said, we will, because you have acted in this way, we will. But you must, each one of you, stay inside your house. For if anyone goes outside his house, his blood will be on his own head. He will perish. And so the same lesson. Outside of Rahab's house there is destruction. Inside of Rahab's house there is safety. Outside and inside, the lesson of the gate. And finally, also the lesson of the cities of refuge. Under the Mosaic Covenant, if you accidentally killed your neighbor, even if uh, an axe head flew off and you accidentally killed your neighbor, you were subject to the avenger of blood. He might come after you, not understanding. He might think that you killed uh, his father or brother in anger, and so he would come and try to kill you. So you had to run to a place called the city of refuge. And there you had to stay until the high priest died. If you stayed inside the city of refuge, you were safe. But if you came outside the city your blood would be on your own head. The avenger of blood could kill you with impunity. And so it's the same lesson over and over. There's a place of safety which God has provided, and then there's a place of danger. That is the lesson of the gate. And so Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, as we talked last time, knock and the door will be open to you. That implies an outside and inside. And in Matthew 18, He says to His disciples, unless you change and become like little children, you will never what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. And so He said to the rich young ruler... Uh, After the rich young ruler rejected him and walked away, he said to his disciples concerning him, I tell you the truth, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, what? To enter the kingdom of God. It's a matter of entering and that's what the gate is for. And then there's the tragic story of the five foolish virgins. You remember the five wise virgins, they were ready when the Lord returned and they entered in with him. But the others, the five foolish ones in Matthew 25, 11, they came later and they knocked on the door. They said, Sir, Sir, open the door also for us. But he said, I don't know you. Go away. Outside and inside. There's a place of danger and then there's a place of safety. There is an outside and there is an inside. The second lesson from the, from the gates is that there is a true gate. And praise God for it. Praise God that there is a gate. Praise God that there is a way to get inside. There didn't need to be. Does Satan have a narrow gate that he can enter in? It's not been offered to him. He has no way. He is outside and will be forever outside. And so also with all the angels who fell with him, all the demons. There's no opportunity for him. There's no narrow gate for Satan or for his demons. But for us, for us, God has made a way. For us, there is a narrow gate. Praise God for it. It's an evidence of God's grace to us that he has provided this gate. He has made it for us. But because it's his gate, he can choose what kind of gate it will be. And he has decided that it's going to be a narrow gate. The true gate is a narrow gate. Now, the word narrow in Greek is stenos. Stenos. It comes from... A, the original root is is something that... Uh, someone that groans under a burden, a sense of being groaning under a burden as under some kind of pressure or constriction. We get our word, for example, stenography from it, which is a kind of a compressed style of writing that they use in the courts, a restricted or, abbreviating or, or uh, abbreviated or compressed form of writing. This is what the narrow gate is. I think the best image of the narrow gate is is that of a turnstile like at a ballpark. Do you ever go to a ballpark? Back in the old days, they had a certain turnstile like that. Now they've got a different kind. But either way, the purpose of the turnstile is to force this huge group of people to go through what? One at a time. One at a time. And why must they go through one at a time? So the gatekeeper can see if they have a ticket. Without the turnstile, they'd go through en masse and, and there'd be no way to tell whether everyone had the ticket. And so I think this is the picture of the narrow gate. There is a narrow gate. There is somewhat like a turnstile. And the gatekeeper stands and each one must have a ticket. And what is the ticket? It's personal faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in His name. But each person individually must enter that gate, that turnstile. And furthermore, it also tends to strip us of baggage. If it's a narrow gate, if it's like a turnstile, we don't come through carrying all kinds of baggage, do we? We come through stripped down. You think again about the rich young ruler. You remember that whole interaction with the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he said, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? As though it were that easy. Well, all you need to do is just go and do this or that and then you can have eternal life. Just some good deed and then I'll be set. And Jesus said, All right, we'll do the good deed thing. Obey the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, Well, which ones? (laughs) You see, that's what self-righteousness always wants to do. Well, which ones should I do and how should I do it? And And he gave him a list of commands and the rich young ruler said, All these I have kept since my youth. Isn't that incredible? One of them, by the way, was honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said to him. And I've kept it from my youth. Well, then, all right, one thing you lack sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That is the narrow gate in action. All these things stripped away. Jesus Christ challenging him right where he was at. Jesus knowing how to touch him at his point of weakness. And so he's stripping away materialism, stripping away earthly possessions, stripping away earthly ambitions. Once you sell everything you have and give to the poor, what point is there in trying to climb back up the ladder of success? You're already there and you gave it all away. Now you're free to serve your Lord. So it is. So he stripped him away of earthly ambitions and of independence going your own way, doing what you want. No, now you have a Lord who's telling you to sell all your earthly possessions. You have a Lord in charge. And he will guide you and he will lead you. But ultimately, stripping the rich young ruler of pride and self-righteousness. And he would not enter. He would not enter. He walked away. Very sad. And so it was with Jesus. The narrow gate strips away everything but humility and faith in Jesus Christ. You're allowed to go through with those two. Go through with humility, a sense of your own need for a Savior, that you are indeed truly a sinner. Isn't this what it means to be a spiritual beggar? Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It means to enter through a narrow gate, a humble gate, a lowly gate, a place where you recognize you need salvation. Oh, do you need it? You need a Savior. And not only that, but you're allowed to enter also through with faith in Jesus Christ, faith that the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is sufficient for all your sins. And so it is that we enter the narrow gate. Another lesson, though, from these two gates is that there is a false gate. There is a false gate. And it is broad and spacious. Shall I say it is comfortable? It is the opposite of the narrow gate. Anything goes, you know, no restrictions. Easy to get through. The gate is self-defined. It's positive. It's friendly. It makes you feel good. I guess the best word for this gate is tolerant. Wouldn't you think that tolerant would be the opposite of the narrow gate? It's broad enough to accept anything. You can define your own terms and come in in your own way. Um, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion. Have you seen it? Hot Tub Religion. Very interesting. I don't know if any of you have sat in a hot tub before. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with a hot tub itself, but there's something wrong with hot tub religion. And that's what J.I. Packer is talking about. Let me read this account from him. The other day I was one of a crowd who spent much of a wet Saturday afternoon in a hot tub. As I sat there savoring hot tub tubness, Cracking small jokes and adjusting to the feel of being bubbled over from all angles, it struck me that the hot tub is the perfect symbol of the modern root in religion. The hot tub experience is sensuous. It's relaxing, floppy, laid back, not in any way demanding, whether intellectually or otherwise, but very, very nice, even to the point of being great fun. Many today want Christianity to be like that and labor to make it so. The ultimate step, of course, would be to clear church auditoriums of all seats and install hot tubs personalized for each person. Would you like that? Wouldn't that be comfortable? Bring your towel and that's all you need. Uh, Install hot tubs in their place and then there would never be any attendance problems. Well, I've I've been wrestling with that. Do you know that two-thirds of all Southern Baptist church members are not in church today? Did you know that? That's statistically true. Well, maybe if we install hot tubs, we can get them back, right? Hmm. Meantime, many churches, evangelists, and electronic religionists are are already offering occasions which we are meant to feel are the next best thing to a hot tub, namely happy gatherings free from care, real fun times for all. Happiness has been defined as a warm puppy. This kind of religion projects happiness in the form of a warm welcome to all who tune in or drop in, a warm choir with a schmaltzy swing, a warm, back-scratching use of words in prayer and preaching, and a warm, cheerful afterglow, another hot tub touch. To the question, where is God? The answer which these occasions actually project, never mind what is said, is in the preacher's pocket. Soothing for sure, but is it faith? Worship, service of God, is godliness the real name of this game? Now, I believe that a good symbol of Christianity is the cross, For Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me daily. But J.I. Packer is arguing that some churches today, the best symbol for Christianity is that of a hot tub. I think that hot tub religion is the perfect example of the wide, broad gate and the wide road. It's comfortable. It's easy. There's never any sacrifice. There's never any need to wrestle with sin or struggle with it. It's tolerant, and all views are accepted. And so, there is a false gate. And we must beware of it. We must beware of it. Well, what should we do with the true gate then? Well, the scripture says very plainly here, we must search for it. Maybe you missed it, but at the very end of the verses I read, it says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And what? Only a few find it. What does that imply? You have to search for it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. There's a searching for the true gate. You're looking for it. You're looking for something. You're looking for salvation from sin. You're looking for true purpose in your life. You're looking for security after death. You're looking for things that only Jesus Christ can give you. But you must search for them. They don't just happen on you, but you must search for them. There must be a hungering and a thirsting. For if you're not needy, if you're not hungry, if you're not thirsty, you will not look. And if you're not looking, you will not find. That's the nature of this gate. But we must do more than search for it. Brothers and sisters, we must enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. That's what Jesus said. Now, some of you like grammar and some of you don't. But the word enter is a command. Did you notice that? It's a command. It's not an invitation. It's not a request. And it's not a suggestion. It is a command. Did you ever think of the gospel as something that we should obey? The gospel is a command from God that we should repent and that we should enter and that we should believe. Does God have the right to command us? Who does he think he is? God? Well, he does have the right to command. And Jesus, as the Son of God, does have the right to come and say, enter, enter the narrow gate. We are not to stand outside the gate and admire it, look at its beauty, or talk about its restrictiveness or its narrowness. We are supposed to enter it, enter through the narrow gate. And as Lord, he commands us. He does not beg, he commands. And we must obey to be saved. Now, many people make a distinction between knowing Jesus as Savior and knowing him as Lord. But you know what you're going to find on the other side of the narrow gate? You're going to find a Lord. You're going to find a king. For do you know what the narrow gate enters into? It enters into the kingdom of God. You're entering into the kingdom of God and every kingdom has a king. And God is ready to take your life and to guide you and to direct you as a king would with love, with purity. But you're going to find a king. We do not separate out salvation from obeying Jesus as Lord. The very first... The thing we must do for salvation is obey his command that we enter the narrow gate. We are not called to admire the gate, to praise the gate, to talk about the gate or analyze it. We are called to enter the gate. Now, what is the gate? Well, it is Jesus Christ himself and none other. For it says in John chapter 10, verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is the gate. In another metaphor, it says in Hebrews 10:19, talking about entering into the holy of holies, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, we should enter in, we should come close, we should be with God. Now, what is that gate? What is that entrance? It is the body of Jesus Christ. It is the blood shed for us on the cross. For Jesus takes all of our sin, that which has excluded us from the kingdom of God. He absorbs it on himself and he pays the penalty for our sin. And so Jesus died on the cross to give us that gate, that way of entry. Well, how do we enter? How do we enter? How are we to enter? First, we enter through conviction of sin, by becoming a spiritual beggar. By being convinced that you need to enter. That it's dangerous out here. If we stay out here, we will be in danger. But if we go in there, there's safety, conviction of sin. And then that search for salvation, that yearning and hungering and thirsting for freedom from condemnation, freedom from sin. Like the Philippian jailer saying, oh, what must I do to be saved? There's a passion there. And then there's repentance from sin. We enter by turning away from sin. A total desire to renounce sin, to be saved from sin's penalty. This past week, we went out on Wednesday evening. We went door to door doing some evangelism. We had some great times, some good opportunities to share. And I'm convinced there's only two religions in the world there's a religion of self works, and there's a religion of grace. And none other. I don't know any others. And so when I begin to talk to somebody and they begin to tell me, and I say, Why would God let you into heaven? And they tell me that they are basically a good person, I believe they have not entered the narrow gate yet. They're still outside. When you enter the narrow gate, you renounce forever the right to say, I'm basically a good person. Basically, you're a sinner in need of salvation. Basically, you're saved by God's grace. Basically, God has searched you and has known you and has forgiven you through the blood of Christ. We're not basically a good person. For Jesus said, there's no one good but God alone. But then once we enter, He transforms us and begins to work His goodness into us. But we renounce forever. And the way we do that is through repentance. We turn our back forever on sin when we enter the narrow gate. Charles Spurgeon said this, You and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must all be brought out like Canaanite kings from the cave and hanged in the sun one by one. What an image. We turn our back forever on sin. That's what the narrow gate does. But we enter through faith and trust in Christ, through believing in Him as our Savior, that His death is sufficient For us, even a sinner like me, that's how we enter. After the gate come two roads. We enter the narrow gate or we enter the broad gate. The narrow gate leads to a journey and the broad gate leads to a journey. There is a journey to be traveled. Now, salvation, the moment you enter the narrow gate, you're free forever from the penalty of sin. But you know what? You're beginning a a journey. I think Southern Baptists have forgotten that. We're so concerned with justification by faith, getting people saved, that we forgot that there is a narrow road after the narrow gate. There is a road to be traveled. There is a journey to be made. Do you remember what uh, Jesus said in John 14? He said, uh, when asked, somebody said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, but how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is it? What is a way? Well, you could say I am the... I'm the road or I'm the path. I'm the place where you travel along your journey. It's a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. We come into faith in Christ and then we begin a long journey. I am the way, the true and living way. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he understood that. You enter through the narrow gate and then you begin the rest of the story. The narrow gate happens within the first few pages. And then Christian travels along his journey to the celestial city through many toils, dangers, and snares he travels. And so there is a way, a journey to be traveled. Now, each gate leads to a road like itself. The narrow gate leads to a narrow road. The broad gate leads to a broad road, a comfortable road, an easy road. There's no self-denial on that road. All you have to do is, for example, profess Jesus, walk the aisle, and then don't worry about anything else the rest of your life. That's the broad, comfortable road. God's Word is praised, but not studied. God's standards are admired, but not practiced. There is no spiritual maturity sought. There's no journeying, no traveling, it's easy, it's comfortable. There was a West Indian man who was deciding what to do with his religion, what he would do, and he chose Islam over Christianity. And he said, Islam is a noble, broad path. There is room, there is room for a man and his sins on it. The way of Christ is too narrow for me. Did you hear that? I wish that every pastor in America understood with such clarity the difference between Christianity and all other religions. There is no room on that narrow road for a man and his sins. And so Jesus is constantly excluding that. He's relentless in it too. The Christian life does not get more and more tolerant. The things that are excluded at the gate are excluded all along the way. But what's really mysterious about the whole thing is the more you move along in your Christian life, the more free you feel. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. There is a freedom along this way. First John 5.3 says His commands are not burdensome. And Jesus says, my, my yoke is easy and My burden is light. And why is it? Because what's outside the narrow way is sin. And sin is devastating. Sin hurts. Sin ruins. Sin robs. But the narrow way is the way of safety. There are two roads and there are two paths. One of them leads to destruction. And one of them leads to life. And thus we move to the lessons of the two destinies. Whenever you're traveling on a journey, you should know where you're traveling to. When they put in the the interstate system under the Eisenhower administration, one of the things they decided to spend money on were signs that told you where you were going. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad? What if you got on the highway and started traveling and you didn't have any idea where you were going? Didn't have any idea the destination? Well, you wouldn't use the highway system. You'd be getting off on the old country road just like you always used to and say, well, it's down by Farmer Brown's thing, the white picket fence, you turn right and he'll tell you where to go from there but you sure wouldn't use the highway system because they're useless unless you know the destination. Now, you should look and see what road you're on right now and what is the destination to which you're traveling. Are you on the broad, easy, wide, tolerant road or are you on that road which Jesus characterized as narrow, restrictive? Well, the one leads to destruction and the other leads to life. Now, the word destruction is not merely annihilation, disappearance. After death, poof, you're gone. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But it's not true. Actually, after death comes judgment. And then we're accountable for each of the decisions we made on that broad, easy road. That's what destruction is all about. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that we who travel along that broad, easy path are storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. That is what Jesus means when He talks about destruction. It is a road that leads to destruction. Jesus is not shy to teach about hell as many American preachers and evangelists are today. And anyone who stands up and teaches you and kind of cuts that out and excludes that part, we'll talk about them next week. I believe they're false prophets, false teachers. But we must know that the broad road, the easy road, that road leads to destruction. But the other destination is life. There is a road, there is a narrow road that leads to life. Now, what is life but the knowledge of God? Jesus said so in His prayer. Now, this is life. This is eternal life. That they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. There's an abundance to this life, a richness to walking with God. And in that rich road, in that comfortable, that, that, that road of joy and abundant fruit, in that road, there is knowledge of God. Eternal life is something we know as we walk along it. But at that moment also, we should realize the moment we come to faith in Christ... We have come into eternal life. But the, this life here on earth is nothing compared to the life we'll experience when we see Him face to face. In Philippians 1.21 it says, For me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. Well, I would rephrase it this way. Paul would say, for, To me to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. I get to see Him face to face. I get to know Him perfectly. There, there's not that dark veil between me and the spiritual realm anymore. I'll see Him fully. That's the destination of the narrow road. And that's what you should yearn for and hunger for. And notice that the destinations have always been the same. In the Garden of Eden, there was a choice between what? Life and death. It's the same thing at, uh, in the Arabah. In Deuteronomy, it says, I'm setting before you life and death. Joshua did the same thing. Elijah did the same thing. It was the same thing at the time of Noah's Ark, a decision between life and death. This is, in fact, a life and death decision of eternal consequence. The final lesson we can learn is a lesson from the two groups. The two groups, you can boil them down to two words. The many and the few. The many and the few. The broad road that leads to destruction is well-traveled. There's lots of people on it. The narrow road that leads to life has only a few people on it. Now, this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because from childhood, we're trained to kind of want to curry people's favor. We like it when people are comfortable with us. We like it when people smile at us and are happy with us. But Jesus is saying you must go the other way. You must be willing to turn your back on all that. You must be willing to be hated and persecuted and spoke poorly of to travel on that narrow road. There are many on that broad road. In this case, safety in numbers is not true. There is no safety in numbers on the broad road. There are many on that road and it leads to destruction. And so it was heard in the streets of Gomorrah, everybody's doing it. Well, it doesn't matter if everybody's doing it. Let God be true and every man a liar. We must go the opposite direction. And so there is a road which only a few find. Like the turnstile, one at a time they come to faith in Christ. One at a time they walk along that road. Yes, of course there's fellowship. Jesus didn't say there's only one or even none traveling. There are a few. And we have joyful fellowship with them. But don't look for it in this world. We're not looking for pleasure and the approval of everyone around us. We are traveling on a road that only a few find. And that is the road that leads to life. The disciples asked the question, Lord, will only a few be saved? In Luke 232, Jesus did not answer the question, but he said the same thing here. He said, Only a few are traveling on that road. In effect, said, Just be sure you're one of the ones traveling on that road. Don't be worried about whether there's many or few. Be worried about whether it includes you. So enter the narrow gate. And so what is the application today? It's very simple You must enter the narrow gate. You must come to personal faith in Christ. If you have never come to faith, you must enter. Now, next week, I'm going to give you what I believe is one of the most devastating scriptures that Jesus ever gave. That there are going to be people who will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Don't be one of those. Look at the road you're traveling. Is it a broad, easy, comfortable road? Or is it a narrow, strict road? A road which puts sin to death. A road in which there is a Lord who governs your life. If you think you've never entered the narrow gate, then enter today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let today be for you the day of salvation. In a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. There's going to be an opportunity for you to come forward and say, I want to enter the narrow gate. I don't want the sun to go down today and me on the outside. I want to enter through that narrow gate. For all those of you who have entered in, who know what I mean when I talk about a narrow road, rejoice in the narrowness of the road. Don't chafe under it. Don't say, I wish it were different. I wish I could wander a field from time to time. The road is a road of safety and it's a gift from God. Rejoice in it and continue to walk along it but know that in the end God will give you eternal life for your trouble. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter for life. Please join me in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians